Welcome to the Back in Time podcast with Kyle and JD, where every week we jump into our DeLorean, cruise to 88 miles per hour, and travel back in time to review our favorite films. Every week we talk about current cinema, the latest trailers, and we pick a new favorite film every single episode. But I need a nuclear reaction to generate the 1.21 gigawatts. 1.21 gigawatts! Don't say that! Never say that! Goonies never say die! You're the best, you're the beautiful, you're the only Ghostbusters! Now, here's your host, Kyle Autry, and his co-host, J.D. To the Back in Time podcast. I am your host, Kyle Autry, joined as always by my co host, JD. JD, you ready to bust some ghost? Yippee Kai Yay Yay. I am. I absolutely am. This is the end of the month. We've had a delicious October, and this is the perfect way to sort of put the exclamation mushroom stamp on it, isn't it? I think it is. You know, I, I think maybe some might be a little disappointed that we're not doing a more horror-centric movie, because we t- typically do that during October, but to that I say Ghostbusters is a big costume movie. If you go to a comic kind, they're everywhere. Ghost heads. So this fits perfectly into Halloween, in my opinion. I'm sorry, did you call them ghost heads? That, we're going to talk more about that, but that is the vernacular that you use for a diehard Ghostbuster fan. That's what they call themselves. I did not know that. I learned something today. Yes. Well, you're going to learn some more because I've got some more info on that as we get going. Now, before we get chugging along in our Ecto-1 and run some red lights, I want to have you guys just take a second. If you haven't done this yet, drop us a five-star review on Apple Podcast, Google Play. Uh, If you're not subscribing to us on YouTube, make sure you hit that subscribe button. Turn on your notifications so every single time we upload a new episode, you're going to get dinged. We like to ding people. Am I right, JD? Dude, I've been dinging all weekend. Hey, yo. Also, we got a new sponsor to the show, um, Five Finger Tees. Go over there right now. I actually just posted up on Twitter a pretty cool t-shirt for Ghostbusters. So get over there. Check that out. I put the link and the promo code five off in the description so you can check that out. It's pretty cool, though. It just says, back off, man. I'm a scientist. And it has the, uh, the ghost trap on there. $9.99. You can't beat that. JD, before we jump into Ghostbusters, let's travel back to last week and talk about Dracula's daughter. It was our turn to take part in this monster, universal monster crossover podcast extravaganza. I should add in that sound effect. Um, JD, what was your feedback on the Dracula's daughter episode? I love talking all things vampire, obviously, as do you, and apparently as does our audience, because... You guys were very vocal, one, in your support, and two, in what you had to say to either, you know, applaud us or criticize us on vampire lore and mythology. So props to you guys for being an attentive audience. There's just so much that goes into vampire mythology, and Dracula's Daughter was a prime example of where all that mythology comes from, where it goes, and where Universal takes it over time for all the subsequent sequels. And I have a quick apology to make. Apparently, during the episode, I messed up the podcast that was going to take the handoff from us. And I called it, I think, the Fright Night Podcast. It's the Fright Club Podcast. So check them out. They should have up their episode this week. They are at 
Fright Club Pod on Twitter. Give them a follow and check out their version of the Universal Monster Podcast and uh, see what they have. Now, JD, let's talk about our week, man. What was your weekend like? I know we're recording on a late Sunday night. Um, what's been going on? You know, I got to say, pretty quiet weekend overall. Didn't do a whole lot. Had some spooky pumpkin carving uh, earlier today, and that was pretty much the extent of it. Uh, I did watch uh, Murder on the Orient Express, though, the new one. Okay, what'd you think? I watched it as well. For what it's worth, I really was not familiar with the original story. Haven't seen the original movie. I knew very little about it. So with that being said, I found it to be a visually stunning movie. The acting was great. Um, The murder mystery was pretty solid. I mean, it was a little on the nose for a bunch of it where you're just kind of like, oh, okay, it's very procedural and uh, very droll. But uh, suffice it to say, I was able to guess what the, the big twist was halfway through which I hate doing as an audience, as you know, I, I like to watch a movie without trying to guess the twist. So, cause I like being surprised. Right. But I was kind of like, Oh, of course that's the only, the only logical explanation. Hmm. My first thought when I watched that movie was, wow, Catwoman's aged very well. And then my second thought was Johnny Depp's had a real bad luck lately with these movies. And I'm, questioning my choice of watching this i was pleasantly surprised i thought it was good did you watch it on hbo i actually watched it in theater back when i had my movie pass i was gonna say i watched it on your hbo account on <laughs> hey somebody's got to use it <laughs> that's good now hey if you could stop like bookmarking real talk or the sex talk episodes that'd be nice because wife's like what's this yeah, but I watch them so quickly after I bookmark them. You know, they're right at the top. It's just it's a little embarrassing. I watched it too. So my weekend was pretty pretty normal. I mean, one, one thing that happened was kind of funny. So we've been on this very low-calorie diet, um, both me and my wife, just trying to lose weight before the holidays get here. Because, um, you know, Thanksgiving will put it on you if you don't watch it. And <laughs> I sneak into the, the kitchen to make myself a chicken sandwich. Okay, we're not supposed to be having a lot of carbs. I pull out a piece of bread. I cut it down the middle. One piece of bread. I put the chicken sandwich on there. I load it up with some ketchup. Take a bite. Right out the backside, a big old glob of ketchup right on my shirt. (laughs) I try to cover it up real quick. I wash it off. I turn around. My wife is standing right there and she's like, what'd you just eat? God dang it. You're like, what is that? I'm like a ketchup stain. She was like, what? Because, you know, no carbs and you can't have ketchup. So, yeah. So I got caught with my hand in the old uh, cookie jar. There we go. Yeah, I caught. How do you forget that? <laughs> my hand in the cookie jar. I'm not, I'm not keeping that. I'm not keeping the ketchup filled cookie jar. It's like the episode of The Office where Andy can't remember the tagline for Kit Kat Bar. And break me off another one of those football creams. Nope, don't tell him. It. Nope, don't tell him. So that was pretty much it. Um, we're going to have some trick-or-treating on Wednesday here. I'll take my son around. He's going as the Incredible Hulk. I will be going as Guy in a Hoodie. Oh, it's a, that's a really good question. And so let's discuss Halloween costumes, audience, whether 
you recently had your Halloween celebration or if you're waiting till Wednesday night to go. What's your costumes? Tweet us your love, hate, what you're wearing, what you wore. We want to know. Kyle's obviously wasting his time as guy in hoodie. Did I tell you what my costume was this year? Guy in hoodie as well? Or did no. you go with the, the stapler? Three hole punch. Three hole punch version of Jim? No. I was an FBI agent. <laughs> that was pretty good, Nicolas Cage. I like it. Oh, what? Whoa. I want his, uh, I want his Johnny Utah from Point Break. Oh, you sounded like Nick Cage, though. Damn you. I hate you. Well, I'm not mad at that. Nick, punk good, quarterback good. punk. <laughs> Chicks dig scarves. Legends are forever. Okay, Keanu. Shut the fuck I take, up. I take the skin off chicken, but I love donuts. <laughs> hey, I've got a question for you. What's your favorite Halloween costume that you've ever worn? Probably. So traditionally, I typically every year dress as a different Jeff Goldblum character. Okay, I can see that. And the one that I've repeated twice over now is Ian Malcolm, which is great to do with just a pair of black slacks, a black shirt. And then just the, 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 uh, 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 glasses. Ah. (laughs) Dino, 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 dino dropping, dropping. It's a great costume. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. I'm going to go for a lot of years. I just went as NWO red and black steam, but in college freshman year, I went as Napoleon Dynamite. That might be my favorite costume because, one, I got a lot of compliments. I pulled it off pretty well. Two, I got so high that night, I almost got hit by a car. And I remember that vividly. That's the last time that I got that high. I was like, I'm doing too much. I just wandered off into a highway. That'll happen. Yeah, that'll happen. JD, let's talk some intro to Ghostbusters. Let's do it. All right, Ghostbusters is a 1984 American supernatural comedy film directed and produced by Ivan Reitman and written by Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis. It stars Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Harold Ramis, and I hate the fact that they leave out Winston. They don't even put him as a star. Can you believe that? Well, to be fair, and we'll get into this later, he does come in so much later into the film. He does, but he's got some of the best lines. So I'm going to go ahead and add it in there. And Ernie Hudson, as eccentric parapsychologist who start a ghost-catching business in New York City. Sigourney Weaver and Rick Moranis co-star as a client and her neighbor, as the, and, uh, and then Ernie Hudson as the Ghostbusters' first recruit. It was released on June 8, 1984, received mainly positive reviews, would gross over $242 million domestically, of course, if you want to hear more about the box office numbers and the critic response, go ahead and check out our teaser trailer episode. It's up right now, and you can hear about us breaking down that as well as actually listening to the original trailer. JD, let's talk a little bit about the Ghostbusters. What do you think of the cast? We didn't get into this in the teaser trailer. We've got some pretty good comedians. A lot of these guys have um, Saturday Night Live backgrounds or different comedic backgrounds. What do you think of our, our three main stars? I, I think of them in this, and this is my answer. And I'm going to tell it to you right now. (laughs) (laughs) 
when I was a kid, I it was always Bankman was the cool one, Ramus was the dork, okay, and Dan Aykroyd was the fat one. And now, as an adult watching this movie, I'm like, Bankman's an asshole. Harold Ramis has his shit together. <laughs> and Dan Aykroyd's not bad at all. What the hell was I thinking? I wish I looked like him. Husky. You know, there was a flashback episode this week of This Is Us. And it's the uh, the boyfriend, the heavyset girl on the show. I forget her name off the top of my head. But his mom takes him shopping and he's in the husky section. And I laughed like a hyena. I'm like, that's totally me. I don't want to wear these goddamn husky jeans. Is that that's not a thing anymore, is it? No, they got rid of that because it makes the fat kids feel terrible. I wasn't husky. I I had I wore huskies for a while. Now they're just called loose fit. That's what I still wear. (laughs) Yeah, but they do loose fit for everything now. Like I go to buy a new suit and it's like loose fit. It's either tight fit or loose fit. It's like. Well, you know, the penis isn't going to fit in tight fit pants, so I need loose fit somewhere. <laughs> well played, sir. JD, do you have a favorite Ghostbusters toy from your collection when you were young? Oh, I love the Proton Pack. Okay. Can't ever go wrong with the Proton Pack. So good. And I've tried to buy one as an adult, but they are not cheap. Okay. Well, here's what you can do. This is what I did last year. If you go to Spirit... The Halloween store, go the day after Halloween. They have very legit proton packs that will be about 30 to $40. No, I want the one from the 80s. I know. You want the like screen used ones? Those are going to run you. No, 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 no. no. I, I want, I want the, the kid one. Oh, you want the, the kid one? Yeah, that's what I want. I want the actual oh. toy that we grew up on. I want that. Good luck. Those are really expensive. Hey, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> I think my favorite, and this didn't come till Ghostbusters 2, but it was the, the slime pack. And it was purple, and it would have like the, the yellow nerf thing that would go off the front of it. Uh, I was always like, slime! And then my mom's like, it's not real. You're just doing it at the tree. I'm like, shut up, that tree! Do you remember the house? Oh, yeah. I had the house, and, it had, I think it, and I think it came out with Ghostbusters 2 as well but it had the, the little hole at the top that you were supposed to pour the slime that oozed down, <laughs> yeah. and it dripped all through the house, and then you could never use it again because you had to clean the slime up, and I was like, well, this sucks. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the movie concept. So this was inspired by Dan Aykroyd's fascination with the paranormal. Aykroyd conceived it as a vehicle for himself and his friend, fellow SNL alum John Belushi. The original story by Aykroyd was much different than what was actually filmed. The original version was called Ghost Bashers, and they would travel through time, space, and other dimensions, combating huge ghosts, which one of them was the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, and they would wear SWAT-like outfits and use wands instead of proton packs to fight the ghost. There's actually some original storyboards that show them wearing like Riot Squad type helmets and movable transparent visors. It's a much different concept. I'm really glad they brought in Harold Ramis, who put his own touch to it. Or I think the comedy aspect. Because he had written Groundhog, no not Groundhog Day, but he had written Caddyshack prior to this. And I believe 
help with Animal House too, if I'm not mistaken. But what do you think about that original concept? That sounds way different. Yeah, it sounds like it was written by Max Landis. <laughs> I've read his version. Very nice. So obviously we don't get John Belushi for this movie because he would pass before they even filmed. But the other character they had in mind for this was John Candy. Candy would refuse to commit to the project, so Aykroyd and Ramis made further changes that were reflected in the film's production, and then Candy would later appear in the music video for the film's theme song, which I've never actually seen. For sure, go on to YouTube to check that out. And then Louis Tully, who was originally going to be just like this conservative businessman, played by Candy, turned into Rick Moranis, the giant geek. I think it's a nice touch. What Could you imagine John Candy in that role as just like this conservative businessman instead of like the hyperactive dork down the couple doors down? No, it has to be Rick Moranis. And for right. what is for the audience, this is our first Rick Moranis appearance. Thank God. It's finally happened. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, I'll, I'll tell you a little story real quick. We used to watch this movie as kids all the time, and audience, Kyle, my middle name is Lewis. My older brother used to torment me by calling me Lewis Telly from Central Park. <laughs> and at the time, as a kid, it was like brutal. It was like the worst thing I could possibly... I don't want to be him. Call me Venkman. Call me... Call me anybody else, but you're going to call me Lewis Telly from Central Park? And he used to torment me with that because my middle name, as we know from the teaser episode or from the, yeah, from the teaser episode is, is Lewis. Here's what you should do. I think this year you should forget about the Jeff Goldblum outfit. I think you should go as Lewis Tully, send a picture of him from the front and be like, hey, check out the backside too. And then have your middle finger up behind your back. And then he's got two photos. Yeah, I'd rather just continue having not spoken to him for over a year. So the family issues have come back on the podcast, people. This is real life. <laughs> now, let's talk about the soundtrack and the controversy to the soundtrack. I know you've been waiting for this for how long? Because I feel like we talked about this like 50 episodes ago. It at least came up on episode 50 back in time. Back in time podcast. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> back to the future in the back in time podcast when we discussed a lot about Huey Lewis in the news. but. Yeah, I yeah I, I remember you bringing it up there. I thought maybe it was one time before that, but who cares? So the soundtrack to Ghostbusters was released on LP in 1984 by Arista Records. The film's theme song, Ghostbusters, written by and performed by Ray Parker Jr., sparked the catchphrases, Who are you going to call? Ghostbusters. And I Ain't Afraid of No Ghost. The song was a huge hit, staying number one for three weeks on the Billboard Hot 100 chart, two weeks on the Black Singles chart, and brought Parker an Academy Award nomination for Best Original Song. According to Bruce Austin in 1989, the theme reportedly added $20 million to the box office take on the film, just from you know, record sales. In autumn of 1984, singer and songwriter Huey Lewis sued Ray Parker Jr. for plagiarism, claiming that Parker copied the melody from his 1984 song, I Want a New Drug, which we played on our Back to the Future episode. And Lewis had been approached to song for this movie, but declined due to his work on the soundtrack for Back to the Future. 
The two musicians would settle on a court, but in 2001, Lewis apparently breached an uh, agreement not to mention the original suit when he brought it up in VH1's Behind the Music. JD, I know we pulled this up and actually listened to it on a previous episode. Anything else you want to mention about uh, Ray Parker Jr. possibly ripping off I Want a New Drug? Yeah, I don't think he... I know he intentionally probably did it, but I don't think he set out to do it. I think he was hired to do it. And, you know, from a lot of the stuff that I've read and we've discussed in previous podcasts in our archives, um, this is what the Ghostbusters team wanted. And it was cheaper for them to just knock off Huey Lewis and have them sue Ray Parker than it was to pay Huey Lewis to come up with a new version, which he Mm. didn't want to do anyways. That's fascinating legal fast footwork. Yeah, and, and for the record, like I, he didn't really he didn't steal any lyrics, if I'm remembering right. It was really just more of like the guitar, like he copied some of the chords. It's the it's the same song, just with different words. <laughs> it's slightly different. Yeah, check it check it out on YouTube. I want a new drug by Huey Lewis in the news, and then go ahead and play Ghostbusters right after it. It's pretty fascinating. Now, the last thing I wanted to talk about was the Ghostbusters fandom. I know we kind of teased it at the top of the episode, but there is a hardcore Ghostbuster fan base called the Ghostheads. Well, it's just Ghostheads, not the Ghostheads. And this was a nickname that was born in the mid-1980s after the huge growth of Ghostbusters fan base around the world. Ghostheads often are involved and thus associated with building Ghostbusters props, such as proton packs. And then there's an amazing Netflix documentary called Ghost Heads on Netflix right now. You can go watch it. It's uh, directed by Brendan Burns and produced by Tommy Avalone, who's done a bunch of really cool things, by the way. He did the I Am Santa Claus documentary. Fantastic. He has the new Bill Murray documentary that's getting ready to come out. It's really interesting. So I'd recommend you check that out. JD, did you know about Ghost Heads? I know you probably have seen them at the conventions, right? I have seen them. They're always there. There's always a great Ecto display. I did not know that they were called Ghost Heads. Like, that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Do you think that Ghostbusters is the most represented fan base at those conventions? I feel like there's always a strong presence there. Always a strong presence. I would say the last convention that I went to, which was in last month. Yeah, uh, a couple weeks ago, right? Yeah, geez, it seems like a lifetime ago. I want to say 75% of all people were dressed as Loki. (laughs) Dead serious. Yeah, well, that makes sense. But the Ghostbusters always make an appearance. And everywhere from... You know, C2E2 to Wizard World to Ace Comic Con to Ren Fair. I don't know if you've ever been to a Renaissance Fair, but you will always see people dressed as Ghostbusters at Ren Fair. You know, the one thing that's really cool about being a ghost head, too, is it's not you're not dressing up as like one of the characters. Like everybody has their own outfit. They use their own name as their patch. So like if I was a ghost head, it would say Autrion. It wouldn't say like Stance. So they're like they feel like they're all part of the universe. So they don't try to like copy people or be characters, which is different. Like you just mentioned, everybody showed up as Loki. Like nobody like it wouldn't if it was a Ghostbusters convention, there wouldn't be, you know, 80 percent of the people coming as Peter Venkman. Oh, but that would be it. That would be awesome. though. 
<laughs> I, I would go as the version in part two where he's the uh, talk show host. JD, let's uh, let's take a quick bathroom break. We will be back on the other side with the full review. And we'll be diving feet first in the Ghostbusters. We'll be back in a minute. What are you doing, Don? I need fuel. Everything was fine with our system until the power grid was shut off by Dickless here. They caused an explosion. Is this true? Yes, it's true. This man has no dick. All right, we're back from the break, ready to jump into Ghostbusters here. JD, are you ready? So ready. All right, let's do it. So we start with a shot of the New York City Public Library. We see a librarian walking around, doing her job, putting away books. As she's walking, we see drawers start to pull out on their own and index cards start to fly in the air. She turns and sees it, and that scares her. She starts kind of running through the aisles, and she turns the corner and screams. Her hair blows back, and we have our opening title sequence in the now iconic Ray Parker Ghostbusters song. JD, what do you think of this opening scene here? You sort of, uh, you, you definitely did the abridged version there of just how creepy it is to see this old woman back in this creepy-ass library and the books are flying about, the note cards, and then we don't know what she sees, but she sure sees something. It's creepy. Whatever it is, it blew her hair straight back. We cut to Dr. Vankman and Ray Stance, and we are outside of their office. On the door, it says, Vankman, burn in hell. Inside the room, Vankman is running some tests on a couple willing college kids. The guy guesses wrong, he gets shocked. The girl guesses wrong, and he fakes it and says, oh, very good, got another one. The guy gets one right, and then Bankman says, sorry, this just is not your lucky day. And then he slowly puts his hand to the shock thing, and the guy's like, don't do it, don't do it. Ah! This is starting to piss me off. He finally stands up, unhooks himself, and runs out, and says, you can keep the five bucks. Bankman says, I will. J.D., what do you think of this scene? I never realized how creepy Vankman was when I was younger. Like, he's full-on in creep mode here. And he doesn't care about the study. He doesn't care about paranormal research. He doesn't care about this guy that actually gets one right. He only cares about flirting with the little co-ed. That's what he's doing in the last part of the scene here. When Stance makes his entrance... Uh, Stance is all fired up about this discovery at the library, and Vinkman's like, that sounds good. Give me like an hour or two. Get out of here. And Stance is like, nope, no can do. You got to come with us. We're going to meet Egon there, and uh, we have to leave the scene. Let's real quick talk about the characters. We've got Bill Murray as Dr. Peter Vinkman. Let's talk about him first. What, What do you think about him in this role? He's pretty iconic in this role, and so much of who Bill Murray is and what he brings as an actor, both is for his serious roles. Like I'm reminded so much of him in Kingpin. I'm reminded so much of him in The Life Aquatic, and then just his straight up comedy and even physical comedy. Watching him pull off some like little just minor jumping over things and stuff like that. Like, yeah, love it. Is this his like defining role? You think? For I, I don't know if about defining role, but it's definitely up in the pantheon of his roles. 
Hey, what's your favorite Bill Murray movie and why is it Garfield? <laughs> Never actually seen Garfield. I'm just a massive fan of all of his work with Wes Anderson, though. Yeah, they've done some great stuff. And then we've got Dan Aykroyd as Ray Stance. He actually uh, co-wrote the idea. This came from his brain. What do you think about him in this role as Ray Stance? I love his commitment. He is in it to win it as a scientist. He believes everything that they're doing, and he has such a passion about what becomes ghost busting. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good word. He definitely seems to be like the really committed guy out of the bunch, at least out of the main three. Not that Egon isn't, but speaking of which, we've got Egon Spangler. He's played by the late Harold Ramis. What, What did you think of him as Egon? To me, this is Harold Ramis's defining role. Yep. Um, I Harold Ramis will never be anything other than Egon Spangler, and he is sort of almost the definitive nerd if Rick Moranis doesn't one-up him later, which he totally does. <laughs> so Egon is taking some readings at the library when Bankman and Stans enter. Bankman slams a book on the table, which kind of scares him, sends the uh, meter off in his headset. And then they interview the librarian. Bankman's asking her if she's menstruating right now. And then the guy that like runs the library is like, what's that have to do with anything? Bankman just looks up and says, back off, man. I'm a scientist. Egon gets a reading on his PKE meter, and it leads them down the stairs where the librarian was scared earlier. Egon and Stance are like, really serious about their work. But I couldn't help but notice how nonchalant Bankman is, almost borderline annoyed that he has to walk down the stairs. The index cards from earlier are now covered in ectoplasmic residue. They ask Bankman to get a sample, and he sarcastically says, so someone blows their nose and you want to keep it. Egon says, well, I'd like to analyze it. Egon turns the corner with his PKA meter, a bookshelf falls over, and you can see Bankman start to believe a little bit now. Looks at Stance and he's like, has this ever happened to you before? Stance just shakes his head no. And then Egon turns the corner and we see the first ghost of the movie. Ray whispers, it's a torso apparition and it's real. Bankman asks what they do and Egon and Stance just stare at each other because they have no idea. So Bankman's like, get over here. And he pulls Ray by the ear and their big plan is to go talk to the ghost. Bankman tries, but... The uh, ghost literally just shushes him. He's like, okay. And then Ray's big idea is they (laughs) approach the ghost. He's like, just slowly, slowly. And then it just turns and hisses. And then they all scream and run out of the library. JD, a lot to unpack here with our first ghost. What do you think of this scene? So I'm going to respond with my thoughts in rewatching this as a 30-something-year-old adult. Okay. Do they up to this point, believe in ghosts? Have any of them ever seen a ghost or are they legit just hucksters? Because their response upon seeing a ghost of amazement of like, holy shit, we were right. And then it, it boo, spooks them and they get scared and run. Like, I don't think that they're capable or fit to carry out the work that they're going to need to do later in this movie based on the scene. Yeah, and that might be how they kind of set it up. And, and I think you can tell by Stance's response to the first ghost he's like and it's real like he even says that like they thought it was there but maybe now they know it's real that's a good catch by you well and it's it's worth noting that vankman goes first here 
Yes. Because later in the movie, he makes Stans go first. <laughs> Outside, Egon says, well, that wasn't a complete waste. These readings, I, I believe we can actually potentially catch a ghost and keep it permanently. Bankman is like, are you serious about this ghost catching thing? Egon says, I'm always serious. Bankman tells him that he's going to take back some of the things he said about him. Stance and the other guys enter the school where they're met by the dean, who gives them the news that they're being removed and the university will no longer fund their group activities. Bankman says, but the kids love us. That cracks me up because he's hitting on the girls. Outside of the school, Bankman is giving Stance a quick pep talk. Let's listen to our first clip of the movie. Stanford now. They wouldn't touch us with a 10-meter cattle prod. You're always so concerned about your reputation. Einstein did his best stuff when he was working as a patent clerk. You know how much a patent clerk earns? No. Personally, I like the university. They gave us money and facilities. We didn't have to produce anything. You've never been out of college. You don't know what it's like out there. I've worked in the private sector. They expect results. For whatever reasons, Ray, call it fate, call it luck, call it karma. I believe that everything happens for a reason. I believe that we were destined to get thrown out of this dump. For what purpose? To go into business for ourselves. JD, what'd you think of the pep talk from Venkman? I love the way that Venkman will later be described as a game show host. <laughs> and he sure has a flair for sort of inciting excitement and passion within people and he does a great job here of getting what he needs to get out of ray and obviously a bottle of liquor doesn't uh, doesn't hurt the situation yep bottle of liquor now the guys exit a bank next and stance says he's sick to his stomach my parents left me that house bankman says you know everybody has three mortgages nowadays stance is like at 19 percent though you didn't even bargain with the guy Bankman tells them to relax. They're on the verge of a huge scientific breakthrough. He can see the franchise rights alone will make them rich behind, beyond their wildest dream. This, of course, was a reality for all those involved in this movie after it came out because the, uh, the toys and everything did make them all rich. They're at the firehouse next. Bankman and Egon are trying to bargain with the realtor, kind of telling her all the things that are wrong with the building. But Stance just can't contain himself. He comes sliding down the pole, and he's like, We gotta stay here tonight! I'm going to get my sleeping bag! Bankman turns and says, Uh, I think we'll take it. JD, what'd you think of this scene in our first shot of the firehouse? The firehouse is such an iconic piece of Ghostbuster mythology, but again, I'm watching it from a grown-up and wondering how they're managing a 19% rate. And, you know, what, what kind of down payment do they need to pay on this, this Ghostbusters house? And, like, so many, so many questions. But I love how excited Dan Aykroyd gets. Ray is just so happy to slide down that pole. And we get to see a different light of him. And the big takeaway that I took is, you know, we have three men of science. And each one sort of represents a different sort of angle that the scientific method takes with, you know, I, I couldn't quote that now, but... Do you, do you remember that from school, the scientific yeah. method, right? Yeah, it, generally. Um, you, <laughs> you can tell neither of us paid attention in a science class in college. C minus. Oh, you did that well? Yeah. <laughs> uh, my point being, so we get to see, you know, Ray smile a little where he's usually so, you know, 
particular with what he's doing in his process and, and getting the facts and everything like that. He right. has more of a Bankman's approach to excitement here. All right, we got a couple of new characters next. We've been waiting a long time to talk about this guy. We have Louis Tully, played by Rick Moranis. What do you think of Louis Tully? I can't wrap my mind fully around this just, you know, New York City Jewish accountant <laughs> working out in the middle of the day, in the middle of the 80s, hitting on his neighbor, then locking himself out. It's just so perfect. And it's sort of Rick Moranis in a nutshell. I love that he said he, he played the tape in double speed. So it was a 20 minute workout. He got it down the 10. So I just imagine him doing like the aerobics, just like super speed. <laughs> that would have been an awesome clip. And then, of course, we have Dana Barrett, who's played by Sigourney Weaver. What do you think of Sigourney Weaver here? And I'm kind of surprised that she did Ghostbusters. I did. She This wasn't really her genre at that time. Well, I personally can never tell the difference between her, Sigourney Weaver, and Susan Sarandon. So hmm. for a very long time when I was young, I was very confused about. Right. They, they look similar when, you know, you're you're young. In the face, yeah. Um, but no, I think I think she does a great job here. I think she's a great fit. And the only thing that I would love to see more out of her is I love the interaction that she has with with Bankman. But OK, it, she almost has like a quiet strength to her that I think would fit so well into today's modern movement. and. Criticize me if you want, but I feel like the the Ghostbusters remake definitely didn't hit what she hits in this movie. Definitely. Yeah, no, I, I get what you're saying. And inside Dana's apartment, she's putting down all her stuff and her groceries. And we have a Ghostbusters commercial play. And at the end, the guys all say in harmony, we're ready to believe you. Dana kind of scoffs at it a bit, turns off the TV. And then in the kitchen, she's putting away her groceries. She sets some eggs on the tile counter next to a bag of Stay Puffed Marshmallows. I love the foreshadowing. I don't know that I ever noticed that until I went and actually took notes. The eggs begin to crack and explode out of the shell onto the countertop. And then Dana hears a growl. She opens her fridge and it's like a portal to hell. She just screams and slams the door. What do you think of this scene? This scene always creeped me out as a kid, um, partly because of the way that the eggs crack and bubble. Yeah. And sort of look like soap. I wonder if they used soap at all in any of this effect. But the, the whole portal to hell scene is just like, I remember always opening the refrigerator very cautiously, much <laughs> like Vayner does later when he first, uh, you know, checks out the apartment in a few scenes coming up. But man, it just was, it's so brutal yet simple. And to me, like rewatching this now as an adult, I, I kind of forget that this is a comedy and that a lot of this is sort of a parody of what is a, a ghost supernatural movie. And that's mm. the point of it. You know, it's just so right on with what it's trying to do that it lulls you to, into such a, a sense of security that when you watch it, you're kind of like, whoa. And then you're like, wow. And then at the same time, you're kind of like, ooh, creeped me out. Then you're like, woo, Ric Flair, baby. Sorry. I don't Wrong know why. Rick. Rick. Woo, Rick Moranis, baby. <laughs> so Ray pulls up to the firehouse next, and he's got this old black beat-up car. He gets out, and he says, well, everyone can relax. I found the car. It you know, just needs this, 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 this. Bankman's like, how much? Uh, only 4800 bucks. 
the vehicle used here for the uh, Ectomobile was a 1959 Cadillac Miller Meteor. And it's uh, basically like an aftermarket ambulance conversion. Uh, you can actually get your own Ecto-1 right now on a site called bobspropshop.com for about $100,000. JD, would you drive around an Ecto car if you had that kind of scratch? If I had that kind of cheddar, I would be in a Jurassic Park gas-powered Wrangler. Okay. So we meet Janine Melnitz next, played by Annie Potts. She's very matter-of-fact. I-, I love her character. Bankman tells her to type something. Can you hear? Don't just stare at me with those bug eyes. They creep me out. Then he walks about five feet. Uh, Janine, I'm sorry about the whole bug eyes thing. Yeah, I'll be in my office. I love that Egon pops up like right from in between her legs. He's like underneath the desk working on the computer. And Janine definitely appears to be uh, smitten with Egon here. And she asks if he reads a lot. He says, I think print is dead. She carries on. She's like, I think reading's a fabulous way to spend your free time. She asks if he has any hobbies, and Egon says he collects spores, molds, and funguses. Dana enters next. Bankman jumps up from his desk, leaps over the counter, and then starts like interviewing her right away, introduces himself, and then we cut to in the back, and they're all kind of asking her questions now, and she really doesn't want to believe any of this is really happening. Ray says he'll go check out the history of the building. Egon says he'll look up the name Zool in the usual literature. And Bankman says, I'll take Miss Barrett back to her apartment and I'll, I'll check her out. I'll check out Mrs. Barrett's apartment. JD, what do you think of the comedy from Bankman? It's always so subtle. It is subtle. And, you know, I, I touched on this earlier, watching him jump over that little door <laughs> to get out to see her. I, I don't know if that was improvised or what, if that was written for Bill Murray or for Bankman, but it just fits his character as an actor and character as Bankman's personality just so perfectly. Just, whoop, here I go. I'm, I'm jumping over this now. I, I like that part of it, but the, the part that cracks me up the most is as soon as she starts talking, you can see him. He was like kind of slouching his chair. Like he sits up straight as an arrow, sees her, and he's just like upright on his feet. I just love when he like pops up real quick, turns his head right at her. That cracks me up. So you can say he gets erected. <laughs> yes. Yes, he does. We cut to the apartment. Bankman is putting on a bit of a show here. He's walking around. He's pumping around his little wand full of air. I don't even know what it is. I mean, she even asked him that much. She's like, what is that? And he's like, oh, it's uh, one of our toys. She goes, you know, you don't act like a scientist. Yeah, they're usually pretty stiff. No, you're more like a game show host. They go into the kitchen and they see the mess on the table. Bankman opens the fridge door real slow, peeks in and says, oh my God, look at all the junk food. He grabs a pack of bologna. He's like, you don't actually eat this stuff, do you? There's nothing but food in the fridge. He says that he believes her. And then they go into the living room and he tries to put the moves on her eventually telling her that he's badly in love with her. And then she responds, will you please leave? And out loud, he says, then she threw me out of her life. Thought I was a creep. Thought I was a geek. He stops by the door and says, I got it. I'll prove myself to you. I'll solve your little problem. And then you'll think Pete Bankman is a man that gets things done. JD, what'd you think of this back and forth here? 
this is definitely the strength that she has that I was sort of referencing earlier. Like she knows, like if you look at her facial expressions, she's not a damsel in distress, despite him being there to help her and to save the day. She sees right through his nonsense. He himself is baloney. Yeah. And she calls him a game show host. Like, I love it. It's just so perfect. And it's so rare in this time to see, you know, a female who even needs help to not be that damsel in distress. Right. At the firehouse, Dan says they're eating the last of the petty cash after Venkman asks for some to take Dana out because, you know, we don't want to lose our only client. Moments later, Janine gets a call and she slams down the phone and yells, We got one! She hits the buzzer, the guys shoot down the fire pole, they jump in the Ecto-1, and they head to the hotel. JD, this is the first time we get to see them in full uniform. We get to see the Ecto-1s completely all done up, painted white. It's got the uh, sirens and all that stuff and the lights. This is such a huge part of that Ghostbusters fandom that we talked about earlier in the episode. The flight suit, the black boots, the elbow pads, the proton packs, the like military straps that they use on them. I just, I love the combination of the outfit here. What, what do you think of seeing it all put together for the first time? It's definitely a classic look. It's timeless. It still holds up. I wish that I we got to see some time seeing uh, Egon create the proton packs a little bit. I feel like we we sort of just jump from hey we should start a business to hey, we've got all the startup funds to, hey, we got a client. Yeah. But I, I'm not complaining because it's so great to see, um, you know, we got one and then the music hits and they hit the poles and they, we get to see the iconic Ecto-1 and they just pull up to this, this swanky-ass hotel in mid-city New York or wherever the F they are. Donald Trump Plaza Hotel. Dial 954. <laughs> you beat me to it. <laughs> in the hotel they head over to the elevator a guy with a just an amazing mustache like well yeah some sort of cosmonaut bankman says no we're exterminators someone saw a cockroach up on 12 that's gotta be some sort of cockroach Bankman says yeah bite your head off man in the elevator stan says you know it just occurred to me that we haven't really had a successful test of this equipment egon says he blamed himself Bankman says he does too. Stan says, well, no use of worrying now. Bankman says, yeah, why worry? Each of us is wearing an unlicensed nuclear accelerator on its back. Stan asks to be switched on, and we hear the, the pack fire up. Just zing! Egon and Bankman both make big eyes and then move away from Stan, which I thought was funny. And then in the hallway, they see a maid go across. She's kind of pushing a cart. Stance and Spangler turn and fire a stream at her, pretty much blowing up the entire cart. And then the lady says, what the hell is you doing? They apologize. Then they turn to each other and said, well, looks like we have our successful test. Stance turns the corner and sees Slimer. Man, JD, Slimer became such a huge hit with the TV show Real Ghostbusters. It's funny to kind of see him here for the first time. And as Ray describes him as just this disgusting blob, what do you think of that for the first look of Slimer? I don't know how he picked up without the cartoon to be as iconic as he is, because his appearance in this movie is very brief, very silly, but not in a funny way. 
like the part where he's later like drinking liquor and it just like there's that like just brown stream pouring out from his his rear end it just made me laugh so hard and you know outside of the fact that he slimes bankman like there's no like hey that's slimer he just is a slimer you get what i'm getting at there i I get what you're getting at so we ray tries to go after slimer but he kind of goes through the wall and then on the other side of the wall is bankman and let's listen to a clip here as bankman gets attacked by slimer Come in, Ray. Pitman! I saw it, I saw it, I saw it! It's right here, Ray. It's looking at me. He's an ugly little spud, isn't he? I think he can hear you, Ray. Don't move. It won't hurt you. JD, he got slimed. What do you think? He got his ass slimed. I, my favorite part about this scene is the fact that Bankman, he's on the walkie-talkie, and Ray tells him to, to stay still. Do not move. He will not attack you if you don't move. But Ray has no idea. No, he doesn't. He really doesn't have any clue. Because keep in mind, outside of when they first encountered the ghost in the library, none of them had ever seen one before. So. We can only surmise that this is the second spook that they've ever encountered. So for Ray to be like, no, it's cool. Stand still. Like, he didn't attack me. He won't attack you. And then he just gets bum-rushed by this green goblin. I don't know. It just cracks me up. Hey, man, who you calling a spook? Back to the future. Episode in our archives. It's in our archives. Check it out. They go down into the conference room, and Ray is wearing his ecto-goggles now. Bankman says, that's him. That's the one that slimed me. They split up a bit, and they start firing at Slimer, and they miss him, and you can hear glass shattering. Outside the conference room, the hotel manager is assuring this elderly lady that her room will be ready soon. And of course, we know it's not going to be. Inside, Ray says, all right, we need to clear out some space here so we can lay down the trap. Bankman says, hold on. I've always wanted to do this. Pulls out the tablecloth from underneath the dishes and says, and the flowers are still standing. Stance instructs Egon to give him a confinement stream, and he tells him to hold it up there. Bankman joins in, and Ray tells them not to look at the trap. Egon immediately says, uh, Ray, I looked at the trap. He tells him to turn off the stream on his count. Okay, I'm closing it now. Bankman exits the room. We came. We saw, we kicked its ass. Stance tells the hotel manager, what you have here is what we call a focused non-terminal repeating phantasm or a class five full roaming vapor. Real nasty one. Bankman says, let's talk money. It's going to cost you $4,000 for the entrapment. And we're running a special this week uh, or this month on proton pack recharging. That'll be about $1,000. So... 5,000 big bucks. The manager says he has no idea it would be so expensive. He won't pay it. Bankman says, that's okay. We'll just put it back. Manager agrees to do it. And then that gets us to our montage, which we'll talk about in a second. 
JD, what'd you think of the first entrapment of the ghost? Man, five grand for uh, for about an hour's worth of work. Not a bad living. I always wonder, is there actually a fee for the proton charging and the containment? Or is that just... I take it that Egon's just making that up, right? Uh, well, I think it's Bankman, and you have to imagine Bankman's making it up. On well, if you, if, you look at, if you look at Spangler, he scratches his face with four <laughs> fingers. Yeah, yeah. And then that's why Bankman says it's $4,000. And then oh, he wow. looks at Spangler again, who then just like motions with one finger across his face. And then Bankman's like, oh, $1,000. <laughs> Yeah, I did not catch uh, the getting the signs. Wow, I might have to go back and look at that. That's funny. Um, yeah, I, w- I would imagine Egon knows exactly how much they need, probably just to pay that 19% for the month. So <laughs> that's probably what they're shooting for. But yeah, I thought that was a cool scene. And then we, we cut to the montage. It wouldn't be an 80s movie without one, right? And we just yeah, have like totally. all these like news reports and like newspaper clippings and Business is a boom in here. We even have a very young Larry King cameo. Man, he's been around for some time. Best part of the montage, though, is, is towards the end here. Ray is laying in the bed in his cot, and a ghost appears to be giving him some business. Look in the beak with old Ray. What what'd you think of this uh, this montage scene? I never understood or accepted the gravity of the end of the montage until I was much older. Yeah, it's I don't know what I thought. Yeah, I don't I obviously didn't understand the birds and the bees when I first saw this. Right. And I don't know what I thought was going on, but <laughs> you saw the new Ghostbusters movies, right? Yeah. yeah. Or the new movie. Is there like an equivalent scene to this in the new one? There's not. Because I don't think you can pull this off anymore. No, <laughs> the part that always cracks me up, too, and I, I definitely never caught this as a kid, but watching it back today. It's, you know, the, the ghost kind of like goes, like unzips his pants and then they cut to him and his eyes roll back in his head. <laughs> well, so that is so inappropriate. What is he wearing? He's got <laughs> on like a royal jacket or something with like shoulder pads and tassels. Have you ever noticed it before? Yeah, He's yeah. wearing like a Civil War general's jacket. We have our first shot of Winston played by Ernie Hudson. JD, your thoughts on Ernie Hudson in the role of Winston? There could be no one else. It I has can't, to be him. He's the perfect man for this role, honestly. He's have got, you ever met him? I have not, but I've heard he's really super nice. And I do want to meet him at a Comic-Con at some point and have some Ghostbusters memorabilia signed. I've never met him either, but I would love to shake his hand. I bet he's got big hands and a big smile and a big heart. Easy now. Hey, I was I was hoping you wouldn't do that, but you did. <laughs> I was just complimenting the man for his reputation of being a great guy, and you went right for his swing low, <clears throat> sweet I love that Janine is reading this long list of things to Winston that he has to believe in, and then when she's done, he goes, "Lady, if there's a steady paycheck, I'll believe anything you say." Stance and Vakeman enter. Ray says he's just dog tired. And then Janine introduces Winston. Vakeman says, oh, good. Congrats. You're hired. Stance hands him a trap right away and says, welcome aboard. Next, we cut to Vakeman meeting up with Dana. 
Let's listen to a clip as they go back and forth outside of the orchestra. Orchestra. Um, could you wait here a minute? Huh? Uh, sure. Dr. Beckman, this is a surprise. That was a wonderful rehearsal. You heard that? Yes, you're the best one in your row. Oh, thank you. You're good. Most people can't hear me with the whole orchestra playing. Uh, I don't have to take this abuse from you. I got hundreds of people dying to abuse me. I know, you're a big celebrity now. You have some information for me on my case? Who's the stuff? The stiff happens to be one of the finest musicians in the world. Can you have some information for me, please? Well, sure, but I prefer to give it to you in private. Why don't you tell me now? Well, okay, I found the name Zul for you. Well, the name Zul refers to a demigod worshipped around 6,000 B.C. by the... What's that word? Hittites. Hittites. Mesopotamians and Sumerians. Zul was the minion of Gozer. What's Gozer? Gozer was very big in Samaria. Well, what's he doing in my icebox? I'm working on that. If we could get together Thursday night, I'm thinking nine-ish, you know, we could exchange information. I can't see you Thursday. I'm, I'm, I'm busy. Miss Barrett, you seem to think there is something wrong up here that says in your mind he enjoys taking his evenings off and spending it with his clients. No, I'm making a special exception in your case because I respect you corny, but I respect you as an artist. And as a dresser, too. This is a magnificent coordination okay, you have going I'll, here today. I'll see you Thursday. I'll bring the Royal Lance Guide and we'll eat and read. JD, your thoughts on this scene? First of all, what is this little jig that Vankman does when she looks over and sees him in the distance? <laughs> I love it. I don't know what it is. I just, I, I don't know either, and he's just so happy to just do-do-do-do-do. But I, to me, this is like the first time that we get to see, like, Venkman's obviously an intelligent man. He's very confident in what he does, but he's very tactful as well. And he controls this conversation and gets everything he wants out of it. He just needed to, like, lose the clown suit, the game, game show host, you know, big lapels. And she sees him for being a capable scientist, which I think is all he ever wants. Mm. And, you know, who he is as a scientist and being into paranormal psychology and normal psychology, I feel like he's sort of, he is the black sheep in the Ghostbusters, but he's the normal one in society where the others are the black sheep. So there's like that really cool comparison and juxtaposition that I feel comes really to full uh, fruition here. That's all good points. And you know, the one thing I, I love, and this is one of my favorite insults to call somebody, is you go, he looks over at the guy she's with and goes, who's the stiff? I didn't know what that was for a long time. And then when I was a teenager, my dad explained, oh, stiff is a dick. So who's the dick? See, I'm going to go ahead and combat you really quick. Okay. Well, I know and understand and appreciate and agree with the fact that calling somebody a stiff refers to the fact that they are a dick. I always thought it referred to them as being a dead body. So somebody that's a stiff is lifeless. They're boring. They've got no energy. They're just worthless. They're just a stiff. You could probably take it any way you want it there, huh? That's what she said. (laughs) 
Next, Stance is showing Winston how the containment unit works. He says, when the light is green, the trap is clean. Then the ghosts are incarcerated in their custom-made storage facility. Janine goes over the Vankman to say that there's a man waiting for him. And then Janine says, by the way, you promised me you'd hire more help. I've been working here two weeks without a break. And then he kind of insults her by saying uh, something along the lines, well, somebody with your qualification should have no problem finding a job in the uh, food service anywhere. <laughs> Probably saying she could work cash register at like McDonald's. The phone rings. He's like, you're going to answer that? And she picked up, goes, Ghostbusters, what do you want? Let's listen to Bankman and Walter Peck. You Peter Bankman? Yes, I'm Dr. Bankman. Exactly what are you a doctor of, Mr. Bankman? Well, I have PhDs in parapsychology and psychology. I see. And now you catch ghosts. Yeah, you could say that. And how many ghosts have you caught, Mr. Bankman? I'm not at liberty to say. And where do you put these ghosts once you catch them? Into a storage facility. And would this storage facility be located on these premises? Yes. And may I see this storage facility? No. And why not, Mr. Bankman? Because you did not use the magic word. What is the magic word, Mr. Bankman? Please. May I please see the storage facility, Mr. Pick? Why do you want to see the storage facility? Well, because I'm curious. I want to know more about what you do here. Frankly, there have been a lot of wild stories in the media, and we want to assess any possible environmental impact from your operation. For instance, the presence of noxious, possibly hazardous waste chemicals in your basement. Now, you either show me what is down there, or I come back with a court order. You go get a court order, and I'll sue your ass for wrongful prosecution. You can have it your way, Mr. Beckman. I'm worried, right? JD, thoughts on Walter Peck? Walter Pecker had. Everything about this guy just sucks. From his <laughs> perfectly manicured beard, to his, his 80s coiffed hair, to his three-piece suit. Heck, you're a peckerhead, so congrats to this actor for, like, I hated him when I was a kid. As a six-year-old, I was like, dude, this dude sucks. This is the kind of guy that, like, you hit a baseball into his lawn and he takes it. And he's like, you can. You, you lose your baseball now. Oh, yeah, he's definitely the guy that would not give your ball back, for sure. Yeah, I agree. I, I hear he's quite a, a nice guy. But, yeah, in this role, he, he did great because I hate him role egon is talking to stance and winston uh, i have to play this clip it's one of my favorite lines of the movie here it's getting crowded in there and all my recent data points to something big on the horizon what do you mean the big well let's say this twinkie represents the normal amount of psychokinetic energy in the new york area according to this morning sample it would be a twinkie 35 feet long, weighing approximately 600 pounds. <coughs> that's a big Twinkie. JD, that's a big Twinkie. What do you think of the Twinkie scene here? Oh, definitely uh, a big Twinkie. It's a decent comparison, and I am a fan of really 
insane metaphors and I often compare things to things that they need not to be compared to. And the Twinkie reference does not make any sense, but at the same time makes perfect sense. And then to see him chomp down on the Twinkie. So we have a shot on top of Dana's giant apartment building. We see a dog statue and the feet start to bust out a little bit. We don't see much more. It's just a quick shot. And then we have a couple quick scenes here with Dana arriving at her apartment. And then she interacts with Lewis, who invites her to come to the party. And then she goes inside after she tells him, you know, maybe she'll stop by. And then she gets a call from her mother. And then when she gets off the phone from her mom, she's sitting on the sofa chair and you see all these like bright lights coming from the kitchen door. She turns and sees the door like hands pressing against the door. Uh, And then these hands come up through her chair, wrap around her. And then we see the terror dog who came from the statue on top of the building. And then she gets like, shot with the whole chair just goes flying into the kitchen i really i love these special effects even in 1984 jd what do you think this is in you know in my experience the horrifying scene of ghostbusters this used to freak me out this gave me nightmares beyond belief yeah and i i think part of it was because my grandma lived in a similar apartment building at least the way that it was decorated, maybe. And she had a similar chair in a similar corner. And anytime I would sit in it, I would say, this is it. This is how the monsters get me. And I, I died. Now. <laughs> Freaked me out. Like, I just, I could not. It, I, I don't know. Like, I love it. And it's so perfectly done and, like, so practically done. And it's so great to see things that don't just rely on CGI. It's just. That was actual people coming out and bursting from yep. out of the air. Yep, absolutely. And, and, and to talk about the, the terror dogs real quick, in the Ghostbusters canon, these are the two loyal servants to Gozer, known as Zool. What, what do you think of the terror dogs? Ooh, they are terrifying. And I love what happens with him later on with the scene with Rick Moranis outside the restaurant yes. with the terror dog. Is that officially what they're called, terror dogs? They're called terror dogs. Terror dogs. I, I, I did not know that. Yep, So, and we're actually going to get to that scene right here. So we, we cut to the party. Lewis is going around. He's mingling. This one girl's like, I'm, I'm about to leave. He's like, no, just dance with me. And then he starts ripping a dance that had me just splitting at the side laughing, watching him dance. You hear Disco Inferno playing in the background. And then he takes a coat from a couple of new guests that have just come in. He tosses them into the bedroom and throws the coat right on the terror dog. We hear the dog growl. Lewis laughs and says, okay, who brought the dog? And then all of a sudden that dog comes flying through the door. I have to say, I just mentioned how much I love the last scene. This scene here has not aged well at all with the dog and the chase scene. Not um, at all. Through New York City. That's probably my only gripe with the movie is this scene just hasn't aged well. But I mean, you got it. It's 1984. Like, what can you do, right? Yeah. Well, I, they they did the best with what they had. Yeah, absolutely. So we see Lewis just running throughout New York City, being chased by this giant dog. Yeah, he arrives at this fancy restaurant. He can't get into any of the doors. So he's pounding on the glass. Let me in. And then he just turns around slowly as we hear the dog growl. And then we see him kind of like faint to the ground. 
And then all the people in the restaurant just go back to eating like it's no big deal. <laughs> Did you pick up on that? It was one of my favorite parts of the scene, even when I was a kid, to be like yeah. how little they cared about him. Yeah, it's hilarious. Bankman arrives at Dana's apartment to see debris in the hallway. Dana answers, and her hair's a little wild, and it's also blowing in the wind. And she asks if he's the key master, and he's like, uh, not that I know of. She shuts the door in his face. He knocks again. And this time he plays along. He's like, yeah, I'm the key master. Well, you know, he sent me over here. She says that she is Zul, the key master, and they are preparing for the coming of Gozer, the destructor. Bankman hasn't quite figured it out yet. He's like, uh, so are we still going out? Zul asked if he wants this body. And he's like, is this a trick question? And then she jumps on top of him. But of course, he kind of like pushes her off and he is a he is a nice guy. He didn't take advantage. And then we cut back to what I think is Central Park, where Lewis is now running around. His hair is all messed up now, too. And he's telling everybody that he's the gatekeeper and he's just fully unhinged here. The police eventually pick him up and bring him to the firehouse. They open the back door and Egon scans him and says, you better bring him inside. And then he whispers to Janine. I don't think he's human. He says his name is Vince Clortho. Janine checks his ID and says, nah, it says here his name is Louis Tully. And then she asks him if he'd like some coffee. And he's like, uh, should I? And Egon says, yes, have some. He responds with, yes, have some. Janine calls Egon over and tells him there's something very wrong with that man. Bankman calls on the phone and tells Egon that he's been, uh, going through some stuff with Dana over here. So she says that she's the gatekeeper. Egon says, well, that's interesting because I'm over here with the key master. JD, what'd you think of this scene? A little overly convenient yeah. to the plot that half the group meets up with the gatekeeper, half the group meets up, meets up with the key master, but I don't care because it's so perfectly done and we get to see the two different elements and neither of them are the bad guy, but we get to see the supernatural coming to life through that. Right. It, you know, one of the things I, I think you can get away with, if you have a good story, is things can be convenient sometimes. Like, this to me doesn't kill the movie at all. I think it works. In other movies, you might see this and go, oh, geez, yeah, well, of course, yeah, yeah. You know what oh, I mean? Totally, totally agree with you. Now, Winston and Stance are in the Ecto-1, and they're talking about biblical times, and they're talking about Judgment Day. Winston says, has it ever occurred to you, Ray, that maybe the reason we're so busy right now is because the dead has literally been rising? JD, what do you think of all the Judgment Day talk here? I think that this is an underplayed scene. Like, there's a lot of subtext to be had here that I don't think necessarily is really cultivated throughout the rest of the movie. But it's a big part of it, and especially in the last scene, you see a lot of rabbis and priests and people outside of, of Dana's building that are just super concerned with the religious implications of what's going on. So I think that this is like a critical scene to set up exactly how important that the world community would take these events. 
Pecker arrives at the firehouse next, and he's looking to close up shop on the Ghostbusters. He's being escorted by a police officer, and he says that he has a cease and desist order. Egon tries to stop them and warns of the danger, but Peck isn't having any of it. Bankman arrives and tries to play middleman. Egon, and he, and he fails miserably because Walter Peck is not backing down, and he's ordering this guy from Con Ed to do his job. Egon motions the Vankman that they need to get out of here. This place is going to blow. And then the Con Ed guy shuts off the power grid and things start to rumble. Egon screams, leave the building! As things blow sky high, literally a giant hole right through the top of the roof. And then we see all the free roaming vapors shoot into the sky. And then Stance and Winston arrive. And they're met by Walter Peck, who orders for them to be arrested. And then we have this brilliant soundtrack song on here called I Believe It's Magic that plays in the background. I always love this song. Uh, JD, what do you think of this uh, this scene here and then the coming montage of seeing all these dead bodies and ghosts throughout the city? I love it. Just It's so great to me that we have a movie called Ghostbusters, that we have a movie about them proving the existence of ghosts over and over and over, and yet people still don't believe them. Until the ghosts are overtaking the city. Yeah. And it's like, well, what more do you need? It's like, I, I almost want to make a, a comparison to a lot of the parables that Jesus did where, you know, he continued to perform miracles throughout the world and, you know, throughout the country. And people continued to, like, doubt him that I think that there is a lot of an allegory to be had about what the Ghostbusters are doing, what the people were not buying into and what some sure. did buy into and the reality of the whole situation. There's definitely a lot of biblical stuff in Ghostbusters dialogue, the, the priest and how much they, they look up to him, the mayor, the Ghostbusters, like there, there's a lot of that stuff in here. That's a good catch. So in the jail cell stance has to explain to Vankman what is going on. And he looks at him, goes, you never studied in school, did you? Stance tells him that his girlfriend is living in the corner penthouse of Spook Central. And then let's listen to Egon explain the end of the world. She barks, she drools, she claws. Not the girl, Peter, it's the building. Something terrible is about to enter our world, and this building is obviously the door. The architect's name was Evo Shandor. I found it in Tobin's spirit guide. He was also a doctor, performed a lot of unnecessary surgery. And then in 1920, he started a secret society. Let me guess. Gozer worshippers. Right. No studying. After the First World War, Shandor decided that society was too sick to survive. And he wasn't alone. He had close to a thousand followers when he died. They conducted rituals up on the roof. Bizarre rituals intended to bring about the end of the world, and now it looks like it may actually happen. So be good, for goodness sake. Whoa, somebody's we coming. We have to get out of here. We've got somebody's to find a judge or something. Hey, wait a minute. Hey, 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 hey. Hold it. Now, we're actually going to go before a federal judge and say that some moldy Babylonian god is going to drop in on Central Park West and start tearing up the city. Sumerian, not Babylonian. Yeah, big difference. No offense, but I got to get my own lawyer. Okay. JD, thoughts on this scene? Yeah, I mean, the end of the world is a concept that every civilization has pondered throughout the entirety of time. And 
the thought that any deity or any kind of entity can come and just cause mass chaos to put a the reign of terror and just boom stomp their foot on us i don't know it makes you and i think egon does a great job of sort of explaining just how fragile humanity is and just how little we are we cut to dana's room lewis enters and says he's the key master she responds and says she's the gatekeeper and then we cut back to the ghostbusters who are about to speak to the mayor peck is also in the room let's listen to a clip here uh, phenomena. Personally, Lenny, I think it's a sign from God. But don't quote me on that. No, I think that's a smart move, Mike. Well, I'm not going to call a press conference and tell everyone to start praying. <clears throat> oh. I'm uh, Winston Zettimore, Yana. Look, I've only been with the company for a couple of weeks. But I got to tell you, these things are real. Since I joined these men, I have seen shit that'll turn you white. Well, you could believe, Mr. Pecker. My name is Peck. Or you could accept the fact that this city is headed for a disaster of biblical proportion. What do you mean, biblical? What he means is Old Testament, Mr. Yes. Mayor. Real wrath of God type stuff. Exactly. Fire and brimstone coming down from the skies. Rivers and seas boiling. Forty years of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes. The dead rising from the grave. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. Enough, I get the point. What if you're wrong? If I'm wrong, nothing happens. We go to jail, peacefully, quietly. We'll enjoy it. But if I'm right, then we can stop this thing. Lenny, you will have saved the lives of millions of registered voters. JD, thoughts on this scene? No, it's so it's so great that we have like the balance between church and state here. We have the I'm guessing that's the cardinal or the bishop or I you know what I don't <laughs> it's not my religion on this one, so I have no idea what they call him officially. My apologies. They call him, they call him Matt or Anthony or Tom or something. Who knows? Yeah. But it's 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 interesting to see that you have the level of authority that you know the church brings in and we have the mayor. It's mayor, right? Yeah. And he's looking at science, he's looking at religion, and he's looking back at science again from a different angle with the EPA. And, and he just has to accept what's reality and do what's best for his people. I mean, it's, it's logical and it's a situation that you have to expect that a lesser man would have made a different decision. So props to Mayor. Yeah, and, and just for the record, the, um, the religious guy is called the Archbishop. You know, the one thing I like about the mayor is just the way he says Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters! Such a New York accent. He's perfect as the mayor there, is he not? Oh, he totally is. And I, for the longest time, I didn't know the difference between this guy, Casey Kasem, and Larry King. (laughs) So the mayor makes his decision. He kicks Peck out of the office. He sends the Ghostbusters back to work uh, with the help of what I assume is probably the National Guard. And then we see Venkman here in the Ecto-1 lean out the window and says, come on, let's run some red lights. The Ghostbusters arrive at this very tall apartment building. We see lightning bolts coming down from the sky. The road cracks. The guys fall down. The police cars kind of dump into the street. Um, All the people that were watching that were cheering them minutes ago are now kind of taking cover. The guys climb out of the now destroyed paved road and the crowd erupts. 
with a chain of Ghostbusters as they get back to safety and enter the apartment building. JD, what'd you think of this um, earthquake type scene here? Uh, it plays into what Zedmore was saying earlier, the, the religious conversation about there being earthquakes and um, the plagues that'll present themselves upon the land. So we shouldn't yeah. be surprised that we get to see it. But I just am always like so troubled by the fact that the people are just like, they're hanging out and then, oh, there's ghosts up there. Awesome. Earthquake. Oh no, totally cool. Everyone's okay. Let's but seriously, ghost, busters, ghost, busters, ghost. Like, yeah, I don't know why there's a crowd. That part makes no sense to me. So the guys climb out of that road. They enter the apartment building. And the elevator's down, so they have to climb every flight of stairs. By halfway in, Bankman asks where they're at, and Stance goes, I think we're in the teens somewhere. Bankman says, all right, when we hit 20, let me know. I gotta throw up. Meanwhile, on the roof, Dana and Lewis await the arrival of Gozer. We smash back to Dana's room. It's been completely trashed. The guys kick down the door, and they see some stairs kind of leading up to this roof area. Then we cut back to Dana and Lewis, who are now standing on the rocks where the terror dogs once were. Lightning hits both of them, and they both turn into dogs. The dogs run up the staircase where we meet our new character, Gozer. And she's played by, Sla- I'm a, no, I'm going to mess this up, Slavica Joven. She was a model from Yugoslavia. JD, what do you think of Gozer? She is so, it, I don't know, do we call her she? Is it a he and it, a they, a just an entity? Because Gozer isn't a gender, correct? Right. I, I don't, th- yeah, basically Gozer can transform into anything it wants. So in this case, it came back as a Yuvo, Yugoslavian model that has gymnastics. Yes, it does. Yes, it does have gymnastics skills. Yeah, so I, I thought she did great, though. I mean, there's really not a whole lot of lines here, but I mean, she looks great. Bankman says, whatever it is, it has to go through us. Go get her, Ray. Stance tries to talk to her, and Gozer says, are you God? He says, no. And Gozer says, well, then, die. die. And she shoots lightning from her hands and sends the guys flying over the edge. Winston tells him that if somebody asks if you're a God... You say yes. Bankman says, this chick is toast. <laughs> they prime the proton packs and start firing at Gozer. Flies straight into the air, lands on the top of this flat top piece behind them and does like a triple axle in the air. Uh, and then they try and fire again. This time she vanishes to thin air. The guys all kind of start to celebrate, except for Egon, who already has his meter out. And he says... Ah, this looks extremely bad. Gozer, oh, this is all voice over here. Gozer says, a traveler has come. Stance asks her to clarify what she means, and she tells them to choose the form of the destructor. Bankman says he gets it. So if we think of like J. Edgar Hoover, we'll come back as J. Edgar Hoover. So empty your head. Don't think of anything. The choice is made. And then Bankman's like, what? Nobody made, nobody chose anything. Egon, did you choose anything? No. Winston, you? No. Ray? He's like, I, I'm sorry. I couldn't help it. No, it, it, it can't be. No, no, no way. We hear Egon yell, oh, shit. And we zoom in on Ray, who says, it's the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. JD, what do you think of 
Gozer, the Destructor, coming back as the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. It's like almost perfect dramatic irony that we have something so soft and so so just helpless, and we've you know been hinted at it earlier with just a bag of it. That for it to come back in a terrifying form, it again reminded me that we're in a comedy, a horror comedy movie. It's not an action yeah. movie. It's not a straight comedy movie. It's not a straight horror movie. It's supposed to be a hybrid of the both. And to have this just hilarious manifestation is perfect. It, it can't be anything else. Let me turn the tables. If that question had been turned on us, what would you have chose? A giant boob. <laughs> just Christina Hendricks 75 I, feet tall I said a boob I didn't oh. say two well mine went to her so so that's what that's what yours is yours is two boobs. Just it just comes back to Christina <laughs> Hendricks walking down the road so like the, the, uh, what? the end of dude where's my car <laughs> yes very nice Sultan. so we see the marshmallow man walk up to the building and they blast him full stream of course, the, the Molo catches on fire here, and Stan says they all kind of huddle. Sorry, here. So the marshmallow catches on fire. The guys all huddle up, and Stan says, Funny, this is how we go out, taken out by a 100-foot marshmallow man. Bankman says, I think we're, we're, we're reading him all wrong. You know, he's a sailor. He's out in New York. We got to get this guy laid. We won't have any trouble. The marshmallow man is now scaling the building. Egon tells them that they can reverse this by crossing the streams. Bankman reminds them that it was him that said they should never cross the streams. So they shoot the streams into the temple at the top of the stairs, and they blow it up. And then we see the marshmallow just explode, and then chunks fly from the sky. JD, what do you think of this scene here with the explosion and the reversal? I read a thing recently that basically suggested maybe that they don't survive this that'd be interesting that that the way that the movie ends is because they explode phenomenally they destroy the city block that they're around because you know egon played he he said this as fact like across the streams you essentially just boom you end everything and he says this as a man of science and fact of experience and research and they do the one thing that he says not to do. So it makes sense to believe that they're all baked and everything that they have is just their their last vision of, of life and their death fantasy. And it ends with a freaking sitcom kind of ending with Dan Aykroyd just being like, oh, here I am. <laughs> yeah, but then that kind of ruins the TV show and the video games and the Halloween costumes and licensing that would make them rich beyond their wildest dreams so they can't die they have to they have to stay so we're back at the top of the building they find each other everybody's fine we see the terror dog who's now just burnt to a crisp and stan says ah oh, it smells like barbecue dog hair and he's like oh bankman i'm sorry i i forgot we see a part of the statue break off and the guys quickly go over and start tearing it apart and Dana appears like a angel coming out of a, a shell. I don't know. She's completely fine. And then we hear Lewis say, someone turn on the lights. Bankman tells them to go check on the little guy. 
Lewis says that the superintendent's going to be pissed. And he asks who they are. Stance tells him that he's Stance tells him that they're the Ghostbusters. He says, well, who does your taxes? And the scene ends with Winston yelling, I love this town. The credits roll, and then we see everybody outside with Marshmallow in their hair getting cheered by the crowd again. JD, what did you think of the ending of the film? It's very satisfying to see them having gone from ridiculed and mocked and just teased to saving the city and, and being exalted for their efforts and i don't get why winston yells that out on the top of this building to himself <laughs> i don't i don't know but if i ever get his autograph that's what he's putting on i love this town i love this town and but to me i think the more poignant and like perfect phrase to like sum up a character in this movie is rick moranis who does your taxes he went through hell he wants to hell and back <laughs> hey who does your taxes? I love it. Yep. So Ghostbusters is 34 years old. How would you rate just how this film has stood the test of time? There are a few scenes that don't hold up, but there are even more that do. And the right. comedy, the writing, the direction, the acting, the scenery, the mythology, everything about it is just so appropriate for this time of year. And audience, if this is the first time that you've seen this movie, congratulations. Welcome to the club. If you're a regular watcher, like probably Kyle and I, who see this movie, I'm guessing, every year, if not multiple times a year. Oh, yeah. Uh, gosh, it's just, it's, it holds up so well. And it's so great to see where the careers of, you know, Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis and Bill Murray and Rick Moranis and, and Susan Sarandon. I'm sorry. Uh, hey, easy now. Easy now. Ha 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 ha. Even Hudson. Um, you know, everybody involved in this movie, I, Ivan Reitman went on to do such great things, and then his son Jason Reitman has done such amazing things. It's and even Ron Jeremy, who has a little appearance in there at one point. It's it's nothing but greatness to be had from this movie. I never caught Ron Jeremy. Where's he at? He's in uh on the street in the end behind the barricade. You can just if you Google Ron Jeremy Ghostbusters, you'll get a screen cap of it. But wow. he's definitely just hanging out there at one point in this movie. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, you know what? You mentioned everybody's career. If I mean, if you go on the IMDb, Ernie Hudson's worked probably five times as much as any of these guys have. He's got like 240 credits on IMDb. Good so, man. Yeah, he stays busy, that's for sure. Now, next week, we're going to be back with an all-new episode and... Another movie that's going to, I think, hit that nostalgic uh, genre that I know you guys love. We're staying in the horror genre and we're doing Child's Play. JD, what do you look forward to most when we dive into Child's Play? The practical discussion about what we do with a doll. Okay. I still don't know that I'm afraid of a doll. All right, cool. Well, yeah, I'm looking forward to it as well. I think it's going to be a fun one. You guys can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play. Uh, you can subscribe on YouTube as well for free. Just remember to click that subscribe button and then follow us on social media at Back in Time Pod. And then email us at backintimepodcast at gmail.com. It's that time of the episode to climb into the Ecto-1 for today. We'll punch in today's date. 
and we're back to present day. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Lou, who does your taxes? Saving the day.